Hello and welcome to this episode of Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast with me, Phil Agnew. If you haven't listened to Nudge before, it's all about providing valuable insights from the world of consumer science, consumer psychology and behaviour science and talking and chatting to authors and pioneers in that industry and condensing their amazing findings into these 20-minute podcasts. Today, I'm sharing the third and final chat I had with Steve Martin. Steve is CEO of Influence at Work UK and Visiting Professor of Management Practice and Behaviour Science at Columbia University Graduate School of Business. He's a Royal Society-nominated author and New York Times bestseller and really great to chat to about all things behaviour science. In this conversation, we looked at the consistency principle. It's this idea that people like to be consistent with the things they have previously said or done. Now, this sounds quite simple and obvious, right? If you, if somebody says they're going to get a sandwich for lunch, they're quite obviously likely going to buy a sandwich for lunch. But this theory can be used to encourage people to make fairly large changes. In fact, it can be used to convince people to purchase products, to turn up to their appointments on time, and to even erect large billboards in their gardens. In one famous set of studies, researchers found rather unsurprisingly that very few people would be willing to erect a large, unsightly wooden board on the front of their lawn to support a drive safety campaign in their neighbourhood. However, in a similar neighbourhood close by, four times as many homeowners indicated that they would be willing to erect this same unsightly billboard. Why? Because 10 days previously, these people had agreed to place a tiny small postcard in their front windows of their home that signalled their support for the drive safety campaign. That small card was the initial commitment that led to four times as many people being willing to erect that large billboard. That's the power of the consistency principle. Quite simply, influencing people gets easier if you get them to commit to something first. To help elaborate, Steve's going to talk about a study he looked at which used the consistency principle to encourage people to vote at general elections. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. 
Well, I think I would direct people's attention to the work of Todd Rogers, who is at the Kennedy School of Business at Harvard University. Uh, Todd has been a pioneer in this work, uh, essentially asking people to create voting plans or uh, in the social psychology literature, we would call these implementation intentions. Uh, and, and you're exactly right, Phil. They go with the grain of this theory of, or principle even, of commitment and consistency. The idea that if I can arrange for you to make a small initial commitment, take a step on a journey, and ideally arrange for that small commitment to be uh, an active one, an effortful one, perhaps even made public to others, then you'll incur some interpersonal pressure to be consistent with that in the future. Um, because primarily what it allows us to do is to feel good about ourselves. It, it provides a, a welcome boost to one's ego. You know, we all want to behave in ways that are consistent with our previous self-ascribed traits and our, our values. Um, to do so means that uh, others are more likely to want to be connected to us, to engage with us, will see us as more consistent, more trustworthy, you know, more reliable. These are things that you know, we all want to uh, be seen as and have that position in society. And so uh, when it comes to encouraging people to vote, you know, what uh, Todd and others have found is that by firstly asking people in advance of the election, do you intend to vote? And when someone says yes, Ask him to then make some sort of voting plan. Well, uh, how will you get to the voting booth? Or where will you be before you go to vote? Um, you, know, you know, are you going to walk? Are you going to cycle? Are you going to get a lift? These kind of things. To make that plan a little more concrete. So uh, we know from you know, decades of research that uh, intentions are poor, poorly often correlated to implementation. Um, you know, that, there's that. It's easy to say something, but uh, a lot more difficult to say something and then carry it out. But to make that connection, uh, particularly when there's a gap between, you know, someone saying, yes, they're going to do something and the, the time when they're actually required to actually do it. Uh, allowing some sort of how are you going to do it? Where are you going to do it? What's the plan? Adds a kind of concreteness uh, to that plan and resulted in, uh, you know, in, in, in one set of data that I can refer to from, from, from Roger's work you know, six to nine percent increases in voter turnout. And, you know, as we know from uh, recent elections, both here in the UK and in the US, you know, a, a six to nine percent swing in voting determines the outcome of an election. So most of us have known for years that phone calls encouraging citizens to vote are pretty important and are staples of modern campaigns. They, they work. But insights from psychological science have shown that you can make these calls dramatically more potent. Todd Rogers' work was conducted during the 2008 presidential election and it showed that facilitating the formation of a voting plan during these phone calls can increase voter turnout by 4.1% amongst those contacted who live with a family and for those who live alone it increased turnout by 9.1%. The control by the way wasn't no call at all, it's simply the normal calls which are made every single election except for Todd's phone calls actually asked a potential voter to make a plan. And these voter plans were really simple. They simply just asked how you would get there, when you would leave home, would you drive or walk? And yet it had that dramatic effect. This is great for local governments who are in charge of encouraging or improving voter turnout. 
but how could it be applied to other industries as well? We've actually studied that, uh, specifically the encouraging people to turn up for appointments in health centres and at hospital outpatients. You know, one of the things we found, for example, was that, you know, you know those little cards that you're often given when you uh, make an appointment at a, you know, an optician's or a doctor's or a hairdresser's or an osteopath's, wherever it may be, they give you a little card where they write down the time and day of the appointment. Um, it turns out that we found that if the receptionist writes down the time and day of the appointment, it's the wrong person. Because if you think about it, the receptionist is going to be there you know, <laughs> in the future of that appointment. But if you give the blank card and the pen to the individual and have them write down their own appointment time, there you now have an effortful and arguably public, because it's written in front of someone else, commitment to turn up for that future appointment. And when we tested that strategy in GP surgeries here in the UK, we reduced subsequent no-shows by 18%. Uh, now... If you consider that the cost of no-shows to our National Health Service runs to many hundreds, perhaps even close to a billion pounds now in, in wasted costs, an 18% reduction in that, I, you know, just by that small change, uh, can, can make a significant difference. There's an important point Steve's making here. The consistency principle is only activated if the person you want to influence makes the commitment themselves. It's no good telling somebody to show up to an appointment in six months' time. Instead, you need them to write down when they'll come themselves. Let's move on to another application of this. All of us will go through the process of selling something in our lives. Let's say we're trying to shift a piece of furniture before you move out of your home. So you chuck it on Gumtree or eBay and get a list of potential buyers. Now, usually we would tell them to turn up at a time suitable to us, but this principle suggests there's a better way. Instead, provide your potential buyers with three or four times and get them to commit to one. That'll increase the turnout and probably increase the eventual selling price if you can be bothered to do it. It's not just peer-to-peer -peer sales, though. Some enterprising marketers have learned ways to harness the power of this principle. Google your favourite festival and pull up the promotional poster. There'll be a vital piece of information that's always missing. It's the price. Why? Because promoters have recognised that concertgoers are more likely to buy a ticket after they've searched for the price online. The time spent searching only increases the likeliness they'll purchase. Similar parallels can be seen in movie posters or album covers. Interestingly, though, the consistency principle can actually harm you in some of the decisions you make. In 1968, two Canadian psychologists discovered that the consistency principle actually went against logical thinking. They found that gamblers at a racetrack are more confident their horse will win immediately after they place a bet. Nothing about the horse changes, nothing about its odds change, but something in the consumer's mind has. Essentially, once we make a choice, we will encounter pressures to behave consistently with that commitment, even if it goes against all logic. Anyway, back to Steve, who explains how slightly tweaking the consistency principle can have an even more powerful effect. Yes, that, yeah, so that was done with GP surgeries. Uh, so that was myself and a, a colleague of mine, Rupert Dunbar-Reeves, who's a uh, a GP by training and now works in, in outcomes and policy in health. 
Um, yeah, we did uh, a series of studies with GP surgeries in North London, and we found that uh, that text reminder, uh, the, the name that you use uh, seemed to be important. You know, if we put, you know, Mr. Agnew, it, it didn't really make that much difference. If we put your full name, Mr. Philip Agnew, it again didn't make that much difference. But if we said Philip or Phil, just use your first name, that first name effect, it led to a significant reduction in no-show. So, I, I, you know, I put that down to this idea that, you know, there's so much information that's being you know, aimed at us now and targeted at us that, you know, that the personalization of information is going to be important. And I can't think of a better way to actually personalize information than to use the word that's probably the most important one in your life, which is your own first name. So I think that's probably what's going on there. What Steve's referring to here is something called the cocktail party effect. It was actually discovered way back in the 1950s when a cognitive scientist named Colin Cherry was chatting with friends at a party. During his conversation, he was fully immersed, chatting to the people opposite him. He wasn't listening to anything else across the room. Then suddenly, he heard his name from a completely separate conversation. He wondered why his name was really audible. He heard it immediately. But the rest of the conversations going on around him, he didn't hear at all. Essentially, his finding was that if something is personal to you, like your name, you're more likely to notice it, even if you're not listening or paying attention. So if a piece of advertising contains your name, it's more likely to attract your attention. But it's not just names. An experiment by J.C. Dacoff demonstrated the effect of personalising ads just by using the location somebody's in. They ran two posters for a broadband provider. The first poster talked about how fast the broadband provider's connection was across the UK. The second poster was a bit more personalised. It explained how fast the connection was at the specific location the ad was displayed. In this case, it was Charing Cross Station. That second poster, the more personalised one, generated 14% higher awareness than the nationwide message. Clearly more effective. So personalising with location and personalising with people's names can greatly improve the chance of being noticed. But Steve's keen to explain how the cocktail party effect can produce negative effects if used incorrectly. I know this sounds obvious, but it's crucial to get people's names right in terms of the spelling and the pronunciation. And I can't think of a better example than a study that was done just recently in coffee shops. You know... If you had this experience, Phil, when you go into a coffee shop and you, and you order a latte or a cappuccino, they'll now ask for your name and they'll write your name on that cup. You've, you've had that experience. Um, and what the researchers wanted to understand is after you've finished your coffee, what do you do with the cup? Are you more likely to put it into the, you know, the recycling, the environmentally friendly receptacle, or do you just simply throw it in the general rubbish bin? And what they found was that it mattered dependent on whether the coffee maker, the barista, wrote the individual's name down correctly. So if they wrote, you know, Phil and spelt it correctly and you could see and they pronounced your name correctly, you were much more likely to recycle your coffee cup. It's almost like you want to you want to keep it. You want to you want its life to live on. However, if they spelt your name incorrectly, um, you are much, much more likely to throw it in the trash. It's almost like you want to get rid of that thing because it, it has no personal connection to me. I, I found that really fascinating that just paying attention to not necessarily the personalization of a coffee cup, 
but the importance of the accuracy of that personalization. And then the subsequent spillover effect it had on sub, on behavior, you know, whether you were more likely or less likely to be environmentally friendly as a result of that. I thought that was fascinating. Now, the insight here shouldn't be groundbreaking at all. People have more connections to things with their name on it, and of course, more connections if that name is spelt correctly. But it is interesting that something as simple as spelling can have a spillover effect into how environmentally friendly we are. It makes you wonder if a fast food chain wants to improve their carbon footprint, should they actually just add the consumer's name to their takeaway packaging? Richard Shotton found similar success with personalised messages when he and his creative agency started working with the NHS Give Blood campaign. The Give Blood organisation regularly ran campaigns across the country warning about low blood stocks, but these campaigns weren't generating the amount of donations they needed, so Shotton and his team suggested utilising the cocktail party effect. They suggested testing regionally tailored copy, which changed based on the region you were in. So rather than saying blood stocks are low across the UK, please help, the ad would say blood stocks are low in Cambridge or Canterbury or Chester or wherever you might be. This personalised message saw a 10% improvement in the cost per donation. It was a tiny, simple change that helped solve a long-standing problem. So if you ever need to convince somebody to be somewhere, get them to write it down. If you ever want your ads to grab people's attention, personalise it with their name or location. And if you want to make sure your kids vote at the next election, ask them how they plan to get to the polling booth. So that's it from me today. Thanks again to Steve Martin for joining me. If you found any of this interesting, I highly recommend purchasing his book, The Small Big. It contains 52 insights like the ones we've talked about today on how to influence and persuade others in in your marketing messaging. Anyway, thanks again for listening to this episode of Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast. (laughs) 